Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Friday the 28th of May. I'm Tom Tilly, joined by Jan Fran. Hey, Jan. Hey, on today's show, why the future of coal decides elections here in Australia. You tend to see a lot of these communities respond quite viciously towards any politician who tries to play games with their future. It can be such a divisive issue in Australia. And today in The Briefing, you'll get a fascinating insight into why this industry, which only employs 50,000 people. Yeah, not a lot. You know, it's a lot, but not compared to other industries that employ millions of people. But it is a huge part of our political debate. So we're going to find out why. Um, First, here are the big news stories of today. Well, Victorians are waking up to the first day of a seven-day lockdown as health authorities try to head off this growing cluster of new COVID cases. We need to have this circuit breaker lockdown. We know that it works. We know that it makes a difference. We've done this before. Victorians know what to do. That was the acting Victorian Premier James Molino there announcing the lockdown yesterday. So five reasons to leave your house, shopping, work or education, exercise, providing care or getting medical treatment. Um, I tuned into some Melbourne talkback radio yesterday afternoon, Jan. Mm. So grim. Uh, I mean, I'm thoroughly unsurprised by that. You know, Melbourneians, Victorians had a lockdown of over 100 days. That was a pretty hard lockdown. So I can imagine going back in won't be too fun. The saving grace is it's it's seven days. You know, it's it's a much shorter period and hopefully they'll be able to get it under control. Um, there are 26 cases now that are linked to the Whittlesea cluster. Um, 11 new ones were announced just yesterday. But the thing with this, though, Tom, is that 14,000 people are now under orders to quarantine for 14 days or at least until they test negative for being associated in some way um, with someone who might have been who might have either had the virus or been a close contact and there's also 150 exposure yeah. sites so this is this is a big thing it's got tentacles you know so those numbers do really tell the story of how difficult this is to contain mm. and how hard the contact tracing job is there's been a lot of um, criticism of that and I saw Brett Sutton pushing back you know, almost emotionally, I'd say, like he was kind of fired up about it yesterday. He's very measured, um, Brett Sutton, saying that the the job is a lot harder than people realise. And when you see suddenly that there's 14,000 people yeah. that they've had to be in touch with yeah. who've been put into isolation and the number of possible exposure sites just kind of skyrocketing so quickly. That's right. And in addition to that, um, the virus that's actually at the centre of the outbreak it has been confirmed as the highly infectious strain that's originated from India. So we're dealing with something slightly different to what we might have been dealing with, say, last year as well. Labor's blaming the federal government uh, for complacency on the vaccine rollout and quarantine management. You would have also wished that we'd had a quarantine system that can cope with the emerging variants where we've got, instead of droplet, we've got aerosol. And the issue is hotel quarantine is not capable, is not meant to deal with this. Yes, that was Labor MP Ed Husich there talking um, on Q&A last night. Now, his comments are similar to those of Victorian leaders who've said that a better vaccine rollout and better hotel quarantine facilities or quarantine facilities in general could have helped the state avoid this current lockdown. So I think Ed Husich is reflecting what a lot of people are thinking right now is that we've had a chance to build better quarantine systems. Mm -hmm. Um, There's that concrete proposal from the Victorian government. They want half the money from the federal government. That hasn't happened yet. And people are like, why not? Yeah. Well, I mean, Scott Morrison did say yesterday that the government was at least open to the idea. We are highly favourable towards this. Um, We think 
it can be done actually quicker. We'll do it quicker. Yeah, I mean, it. Do there's, it. There's only one federally backed facility right now in Australia, and that's the Howard Springs camp in the NT. Um, and it sort of looks like a bit of a. I mean, I don't know whether you went to camp in high school. I did. It looks very similar to Howard Springs. It's demountables. It's open. There's a lot of air. Queensland's been pushing for one. Victoria's been pushing for one, and nothing's happened. And one of the reasons that you know hotel quarantine's been brought up yet again is because the man or the person at the centre of the Victorian cluster, actually caught um, COVID in hotel quarantine in South Australia. And there was a report that came out just this week that suggested that that was highly likely caused by the close timing of doors opening and Mm. doors closing between adjacent rooms. I mean, this is the sort of transmission that we're talking about, right? So it clearly highlights the the weakness in that system Mm. and then the enormous implications of that weakness. So when they say, you know, more than... 99% 99% of the time it's effective. In that less than 1% of cases, it's not that many proportionately, but the impact is so huge that we have now Australia's second biggest city in, in lockdown. Yeah. Um, the front page of the AFR this morning is like a billion dollars lost in business and trade in Victoria from this decision. So yep. here, we, here we are. And a group of eight teenagers and a nun have had a legal win against the Federal Environment Minister. Yeah, so this group of teenagers, they needed this 86-year-old nun to be their litigation guardian uh, in the federal court because they're under 18. Yeah, so their legal action was aimed at stopping Susan Lee from being able to approve the extension of um, a Whitehaven coal mine in northern New South Wales. Now, the judge accepted the argument that the minister had a common law duty of care to protect future generations from the impact of climate change, but it did rule that the minister would not actually breach her duty of care in allowing this particular mine to expand. So, mixed result there. Yeah, so Whitehaven are going, this is a good decision for us, but um, these young environmental activists are, you know, claiming a win on the duty of care decision. Mm. Now, we actually covered this story in a briefing topic. We spoke to Sister Bridget Arthur um, when this case started. Here's what she told us. There are short-term gains probably from continuing to uh, mine coal, but politicians are supposed to be there to look at what's in the common good long-term and then to manage that. Do you remember I I asked her, you know, oh, is it unusual for a nun to be getting involved in a political (laughs) issue? And she's like, no, dude. <laughs> nah, man, baller. She's getting out there. We've been we've been fighting many good fights for many decades. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what impact this decision has and whether it will affect future coal mine approvals. Right? Yeah, we'll we'll see how that plays out in time. This decision in Australia comes um, right as we got that big news from the Netherlands, which we brought to you yesterday on the briefing. And um, this was a case also brought by a big group of concerned citizens in The Hague in the Netherlands. And the decision ordered Shell to reduce its carbon emissions by 45% by 2030 on 2019 levels. So forcing a huge fossil fuel company to Mm. get its act together. Mm. Actually, a very similar thing happened in Germany as well this year, um, where the German government was forced to actually revise its emissions reduction targets again after a court ruling. So lawfare in terms of... um, environmental activism, not necessarily new, but feels like it's gaining some momentum. Yeah. And so it's not just these legal fights where activists are trying to get um, governments and businesses to do more. It's also in the finance space. There's another decision um, from yesterday in, in the US where a tiny hedge fund has managed to unseat two board members 
of ExxonMobil Corp. So another huge fossil fuel company. And this hedge fund is trying to get this company to do more on climate change. They managed to get two board members off. The New South Wales Rugby League will appoint extra security when Jack DeBellin returns to the field tomorrow after the sexual assault charges against him were dropped. Yes, so the Rugby League authorities say the measure is there to protect the 30-year-old player from antisocial behaviour as he joins his teammates on the field for the first time. He won't be playing first grade, but just 48 hours after this legal decision, he'll be back on the field. Yeah, that's right. Well, he and uh, Callan Sinclair are no longer facing the prospect of a third trial. This is over rate charges stemming from 2018 after the juries in the last two trials couldn't reach a verdict on all charges. The New South Wales Director of Public Prosecutions dropped those charges on Wednesday and they're expected to be formally withdrawn in court today. And Japanese doctors are warning their country's hosting of the Olympic Games in July could turn it into a breeding ground for a new Olympic COVID variant. The head of the Japanese doctors' union said having thousands of people converge on the country from around the world could create the new COVID strain. Yeah, mutant COVID strains have wreaked havoc, as we've seen in countries such as India and the UK. There's a lot of opposition to these games. I know they're only just, you know, weeks away, but the Japanese people really don't seem to want them. There was a survey out um, just last week that showed 83% of responders in Japan said that the game should be scrapped or postponed. That's a big percentage. Too bad. You're having the games. Oh. You wanted them. You caught them. I don't know. You know, there's it's Japan's going through a fourth wave at the moment. There's an average of 4,500 COVID cases a day. Yeah, but there's 120 million people in Japan. Like, is 4,000 cases really a lot? Well, I don't think it's up to you, Tom. Are you living in Japan? The people. Well, apparently it's not up to them either. No. It's the International Olympic Committee. That's right. It is. I mean, there's 11,000... Olympic and four and a half thousand Paralympic athletes that are going to be there. You know, that's that's not a small number. No spectators. Lots of them vaccinated, all tested thoroughly before they arrive, kept separate from citizens. Yep. I feel like we're very clearly on, on two sides of the fence here as to whether... We've got to get on with our lives. <laughs> okay. The Olympics symbolise human progress. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I hope everything goes well and that it's a good time for the players. You know, there's no spectators and there's no singing and there's no chanting. And, and for the TV viewers in the safety of their homes, <laughs> which will be us. In a moment, a very interesting conversation about why coal is such a big political issue here in Australia. In today's briefing, coal mining employs around 50,000 people directly. So why does it dominate Australian politics? This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. A prime ministerial retort, full-throated support for mining. The state government has pulled off a political miracle, winning the crucial by-election for Upper Hunter. This particular by-election also had the added spice of being in a coal seat. It's a diabolical result for the Labor Party and a real wake-up call. The Labor brand is in trouble. As you can hear there, coal mining came up as a big issue at the recent by-election in New South Wales in the Upper Hunter, where... Labor got smashed and the Nationals got re-elected. And you also heard there some of the debate around coal in the 2019 federal election, which Scott Morrison won largely because he won over those coal mining communities of central Queensland. Yeah, now according to the Bureau of Statistics, there are around 240,000 people employed in the mining industry in Australia. So that includes, you know, things like iron ore, gold, all of it. 50,000 in coal, but 
There's also 250,000 people who are employed in the arts and recreation industries. And healthcare, for example, employs 1.8 million people. But those industries don't seem to be swinging elections as a voter bloc. So what is going on here? Yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic in Australian politics and culture. And one person who's been really looking into this closely, running focus groups and doing lots of research, is Cosmos Samaras. He's a former Labor strategist, but he's gone out on his own. He's now a director at a political consultancy called Redbridge. So Cosmos, are we crazy or are we stupid? Are we within our rights to be slightly perplexed about why an industry that directly employs only 50,000 people tanks up so much political attention. I wouldn't say you're crazy. I would say that uh, the 50,000 is really only a uh, small representation of a broader problem that I think the left the left side of politics has been tackling or grappling with for the last 20 odd years. When you're talking about those coal mining communities, you're not just talking about coal mining, you're talking about the communities that are obviously situated in those particular electorates, but you're talking about a broader problem that I think has been occurring in in this country over the last 20-odd years. Let's talk about small-town Australia. I grew up in Mudgee. It's a town Mm. that was 7,000 people, had a big coal mine, Yulon coal mine, about 45 minutes drive away. The best-paid workers in our town were from the Yulon coal mine. There are also engineering firms that contracted to the coal mine, so there was mm. wider employment. Talk us through mm. the, the regional town dynamic and how um, mining plays an important role. We can talk about, for example, Northern Tasmania. If you look at the situation in Northern Tassie, the Labor Party's vote there, both at a state and federal level, has been going backwards now for 20 years. There is some small level of mining up in the north, but it isn't as extensive as it is in the Hunter, for example or in northern Queensland. But the problems are the same. So you've got a situation where manufacturing has been declining in that part of the world for some time. It took a really big dive during the GFC, and that that's actually a story right across the country in regional Australia. And so you've got a situation now where for a lot of these communities, although many don't actually directly work in those mines, they view them as examples of basically reasons why their community can sustain itself in years to come. We, we did some analysis over the last couple of years um, about what is actually happening in northern Tasmania, and there has been a, a significant exodus of young people, late 20s, uh, early 30s, mid-30s, people with young kids leaving northern Tassie, not going to Hobart, going to the mainland. And so you've got this exodus occurring whilst at the same time Um, job opportunities are decreasing. And so people see this decline around them and that elevates anxiety and dread. You tend to see a lot of these communities respond quite viciously towards any politician who tries to play games with their future. A lot of these other industries, they've kind of fallen away. Mining Mm. seems to remain the last sort of stronghold for a lot of communities. And is that why they're attached to it? Yeah, that's right. It's the last bastion of hope, really, for a lot of these communities. They know. They're experts in this field. When I used to talk to people about my neck of the woods, which is, you know, um, manufacturing Melbourne, particularly up here in the north uh, of Melbourne around uh, Ford Car Plant, you talk to any of those people that used to work at the Ford Car Plant, they were were experts on free trade agreements. They knew everything about their industry because it was their own employment, their own livelihood. They were well-versed in everything that impacted their workplace. Mm. So they're not mugs. When you talk to them about transition, for example, 
and I'll, go, again, I'll use the Ford analogy, most of my friends that ended up working in Ford, most of them now are in some form of employment. It pays less. Many of them have not had a holiday since they left Ford, so they've been working as casuals. Their standard of living has declined. They are of an age now where they've got children who are in their teens or early adult years, and those kids are seeing have seen that decline. They are soon to be jumping on the electoral roll. You have a cumulative effect going on electorally mm. where a new generation will sweep through, as it is in those electorates in like the Hunter, where young people are jumping on, on the roll, they're voting for the first time or they're voting for the second and third time and they're not voting for the majors. Well, how, how does this play out electorally? You know, of the 151 seats, like how many of yep. them would have substantial numbers of people working in coal mining yeah, and, and power generation? And, and beyond that, how many of them also have this psychology that you're talking about of feeling mm. under threat on a whole range of um, economic levels? New South Wales, you're looking at least at three seats. So Hunter, Patterson and Shortland. There's obviously a couple in Queensland that fall into that category. You're already looking at five, six seats before we look at other similar electorates, but not obviously relying on coal. Mm-hmm. Um, that's effectively the sort of number of seats we're looking at now, five seats. That's, you know, not many in the whole scheme of things. But path to victory for both major parties now is becoming a lot more narrow as the electorate fragments and has been fragmenting for 20 plus years. Five seats is quite significant. This is so interesting, um, Cosmos. I feel like you're taking us into a place that we we don't hear enough about. You're really getting into the the psychology and the emotion of people living in these communities that are changing and that sense of being under threat. For me, that's really illuminating a lot about this political dynamic. Yeah, there's also the other dynamic, which when we're talking about coal mining communities, there are even differences within those communities. So open cut mining versus underground mining, there actually are politically cultural differences between the people that work on those mines. So open cut mining tends to be a bit more modern. The people that have moved to work on those mines are, well, they're not kids anymore, but 20 years ago they were, kids who grew up in agricultural communities that have been experiencing their own form of decline. So Mm. labour-intensive agricultural communities becoming automated, those jobs shrinking, those kids moving to other regional centres, looking for work, ending up working on these mines. They don't have a history with the mines. Like, you know, the old tradition of coal miners underground, being labour, union, you used to have that culture. And that's still there for the underground miners. So the underground miners tend to be a bit more solid for labour and the left, left side of politics because there's a history there. I get the sense from what you're telling us that there's a much bigger number of, of other seats that would face this this broader challenge of being a regional community that feels like it's under threat and that yes. talking down the future of coal is very bad news in a community, even though it's not directly affected by coal. That's right. It's telegraphing. If you're a political party and you're in that space and you're really mismanaging the narrative, you're telegraphing to these communities that you really don't have their interest at heart. So we when won't, we won't defend rec- you. We won't stick up for you. Is that what it's saying? Correct. Absolutely. On the money there. The overwhelming sentiment is that they feel that the major parties, but in particular the left side of politics, uh, spends too much time worrying about the interests and concerns of people living in the large cities. 
And that's not a hard sort of mindset for these people to develop, given if you go and talk to anyone that's grown up in regional Australia, and yourself included, you'll know that there's almost this perception when you're growing up, the city folk think they're better than you are, Yeah. right? It doesn't matter where you live. You could live in those coal mining communities. You could live in Newcastle. You can live in Northern Tassie. It does not matter. If you hear it, you say, oh, well, they're just trying to appease people in the inner city of Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane. So how does Labor uh, manage this narrative? I mean, you said hard. there that they were out yeah. there sort of fumbling, not mm. getting their words straight. Mm. All right, how do they yeah. do it right then? It's very difficult. The Labor Party as a political movement, as I think everyone who has an interest in politics will know, was born out of the third phase of the Industrial Revolution in the early 1900s, and that is it was created to represent a particular workforce. Mm-hmm. It's since gone through, obviously, many, many manifestations and changes and so on, and now represents a much broader constituency, was trying to represent much broader constituency. Much of its base now is in the large cities, Cosmos, it appears to me that this whole situation just really plays much better into the history of the the Liberal Party and the National Party because they've been about small government and not sort of restricting industries. They appeal to aspiring suburban voters. They appeal to those traditional farmers who are now working in mining. They fight for small business, which plays well in, in regional towns. And then they haven't promised to be more progressive on environmental policies. So it all kind of works in their favour and Labor seem to be snookered. Yeah, that's right. So I can give you a, a bit of an insight into the reasons why that actually works really well for the Conservatives by just regaling you with a very good uh, description given to us by a manufacturing worker in one of our large cities last year, one of our focus groups. This um, is very telling because this person's basically said, look, you know, My father encouraged me to enrol in the early 90s because he wanted me to vote for the Labor Party. We were a strong Labor Party voting family. So off I went and enrolled. Then an election came around and we all, in a sort of ritual sort of way, went and voted for the Labor Party in very proud fashion. Since then, my life and my economic circumstances has gotten worse. And so has everyone around me and all my friends. We've lost our jobs. We've kept voting Labor. We've kept voting Labor, election after election, but our life got worse. Sooner or later, you come to the conclusion that your vote doesn't actually help you economically. So once you come to that realisation that your vote doesn't help you, then you just start voting on other issues. So I think that's actually quite insightful because that actually tells us a story of a large group of people in this country who now have a view that their vote doesn't impact them economically. That was Cosmos Samaras. Some really interesting stuff there, Jan. I wonder how Labor deal with this. It, it seems very challenging. I once had a big boozy Chinese dinner with Laurie Oakes, a veteran political commentator. We're dropping some names now. Bit of a legend. <laughs> anyway, he said Labor should give up more seats in the inner cities to the Greens so they don't have to be as progressive and then more easily can appeal to working class voters, particularly the ones we've been talking about today. Mm. Well, I mean, it's interesting asking a Labor strategist what Labor should do and him saying, you know what, I don't know. (laughs) It's difficult. (laughs) Maybe they are in a pickle if the people who were paid to answer that question have trouble coming up with the answer. All right, tomorrow in your podcast feed, very exciting as always on a Saturday morning, Jamila Rizvi with The Weekend Briefing. And Jamila, this time you spoke to Rove. How did it go? I didn't quite know what to expect from my chat with Rove McManus. I feel like I grew up watching him on Rove Live. He was probably 
at the peak of his fame when I was in my late teens and early 20s and mm. Rove Live was what you would talk about the next day at school or at uni. So I was a little bit starstruck. We had a great conversation though. He really drew back the curtain on the Australian entertainment industry and showed me a side of him as well as how TV really works that surprised me and made me wonder how much is still the same. We also touched on some of the harder parts of Rove's life, including how he dealt with his grief after the death of his late wife, Belinda Emmett. This is a must-listen episode of The Weekend Briefing. Wow, really sounds like it. He does have an incredible story, Rove, especially when you get into that personal stuff um, and, of course, his career. Thanks so much for that, Jamila. Really looking forward to that. Uh, I'm going to have next week off the briefing because I'm hosting the graveyard shift, the night shift on Triple M. Oh, okay. Still <laughs> still doing the, the tough hours. Either you're getting up very early in the morning or you're staying up very late. Yeah, so if you, you want to call me, dial into Triple M <laughs> next week. We got five and a half hours of live radio to fill. Yeah. Yeah. Good news though. You will have me in the hosting chair next oh, week. So yeah. we'll catch you then. Listener.